And this series was kind of birthed out of this desire to get a little bit deeper into our understanding, okay, into our understanding about some of the what's in our lives, specifically in terms of the church, some of our spiritual lives. And the problem has become, and this was a great way, Pastor Chris uh, framed this up for us last week, did an amazing job. You need to go back and listen to that. But he, he framed it up this way, that the problem is that most, most people may have an idea of the what in their life, but they are uninformed, indifferent, or possibly even confused about the why. And this is a cultural issue, right? This is a cultural issue in terms of uh, oftentimes people don't know the why of what they believe or what they're talking about. What com- that comes with politics, social ideology, big plans, big ideas, thoughts about family, kids the same way. We teach kids more now what to think than how to think because if you teach kids how to think, they have to know why they're going to think that way. Everybody with me? So oftentimes the why is just not present because it's so much easier we think or this culture is thought it's easier just to teach people the what behind that. But again, it kind of creates this very mile-wide, inch-deep surface culture, and it can be very problematic in the church. We have almost two generations worth of Christians who are at this point biblically illiterate and do not fully understand some of the whys behind the doctrinal beliefs and theological beliefs of their faith. Chris read a statistic last week and some statistics from a life research project called the State of Theology. It was a 2020 project, but this was the statement he, he wanted us to see because it's true. The U.S. adults appear to have a very superficial attachment to well-known Christian beliefs. Superficial meaning the what is there is present, the idea is there, but the why we believe those things just doesn't have any roots, doesn't have any depth. And that's very, I mean, it's very much a problem. I mean, I, you've heard me say this before. Most people don't know what the Bible says. They just know what someone has told them what the Bible says. Everybody with me? Nod your head. Yeah. They don't know what the Bible says because they've never actually read it. They've never actually said it on their own. But they know what someone else has told them what the Bible says, and that can be extraordinarily problematic. Last week, we talked about salvation. This was the, the what last week was salvation and eternal security. Again, go back and listen to Pastor Chris. It was a phenomenal message about our faith and the beginning journey of that salvation journey, um, the source of truth, as we talked about, and, and, and understanding that, that really we, we kind of go countercultural to the modern-day spiritualism that you know, there are many roads, there are, there are many roads that lean to the same destination, and that is just malarkey. Everybody with me? Like, it's, it's wrong, number one, but it's, it, and it's foolish, number two, because it brings zero security. If you actually, you might think it's, you might, you might think for a moment, like, that makes everybody get along a little bit better when there's many roads that lead to the same place, but the reality is, is that gives you absolute no security and no depth to your faith at all. And your spiritualism. That's it. So it kind of runs countercultural to that. And in addition to that, the eternal security that we read in Scripture. He dove into this source of why. And, and I'm just going to use the same slide he used last week to help us understand like, our why must be defined by God's Word. You know, there, there's a lot of so, social ideology. And again, we did a series on this like two series ago or three series ago 
about biblical worldviews and social ideology and cultural issues. But guys, I'm telling you, you cannot have a biblical worldview if you don't read the Bible. Like You just can't. You can't have a biblical worldview if you don't know the why from Scripture. You believe what you believe and you act the way you act. So that's our why must be defined by God's Word. Today we're going to talk about this what? This is the, the next big stone we're going to look at today. It's called, the word is, and you, this is not a word we use a lot in terms of necessarily teaching or preaching, but it's going to be found a lot of times when you begin to do deep studies theologically and in the doctrines of the faith, and it's sanctification, all right? Sanctification. Now, I have a hard time talking about sanctification without giving you the framework of the full framework of understanding justification and glorification. I know those sounds like, these are not words that you would say over lunch today. Oh, it was amazing justification today, you know. But I have to give you the framework and understanding. Again, big theological framework. I'm going to give you a quick summary, but you got to understand how these all play parts uh, together. So again, big overview summary. Not going to dive deep into each one of these. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into sanctification today, because today that's the what. Here's some quick ways to think through and, and kind of understand this, all right? Now, I'm going to read the white, you read the yellow. You guys ready? Justification, sanctification, glorification. It's good. Let's do it one more time. Justification, sanctification, glorification. These, this particular framework of theology actually informs our doctrine. It informs what we believe, not only just some of the things we believe, but it also informs our behaviors and some of our actions. All right, let me walk you through. Justification is that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. This goes all the way back to everything Pastor Chris talked about last week. Justification. All right, justification is when we were made right with God. We were righteousified. That's a made-up word, by the way, so... We were made right with God. God declared because of the work that Jesus Christ did that you and I, based on no effort at all and no, nothing on our value, you and I could be right and stand in the rightness with Jesus to God. That's what justification is. It is, a, it is something that has happened, and I say that you know, positively. I hope everyone listening here has had a moment of salvation, has had that time in which you've surrendered your life to God. Because justification is what happens. We have been saved. At that point, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Because the wages of sin is death, and we talk about eternal death. talked a little bit more about that last week. Now, the critical point to remember, and I just want to make sure you hear this, is that receiving eternal life, right, being declared right by God's standards to God doesn't actually make you righteous. Everybody with me? That's a little weird. Being declared right in the sight of God and receiving eternal life doesn't actually make you righteous in your behavior, in your thoughts, in your actions. It doesn't do it. If that was the case, you'd never sin again. You would be instantly transformed and made new into your new body and everything, like from eternity on. Like that would, that would be what happens. So because of that, we have this term, sanctification, right? Sanctification is what we uh, are being. We are being saved from the power of sin. 
right? We have been saved from the penalty of sin, but we are being saved from the power of sin in our lives and over our lives. This is a lifelong process of sanctification, of being sanctified. Sanctification, again, we're going to dive deeper into this, but it's living in the rule and reign of God, seeing other people as God sees them. More importantly, sometimes even seeing yourself the way God sees you. And just like justification, it is a work of grace through faith, not us. Okay, sanctification is a work. Now, we're involved in it. (laughs) We're involved in it. But sanctification actually is a work of the Spirit through grace and faith. Lastly, glorification. Glorification is we will be, we will be saved from the presence of sin, right? We will be saved from the presence of sin. Glorification is the future event, okay? We don't know when it's going to happen, either by your death or by Jesus coming back. we got a series about that coming up in the summer. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have our perfect glorified bodies. They're not going to ache anymore. They're not going to hurt anymore. We're all going to look amazing, Right? And these redeemed, sinless bodies are going to live forever, eternally. Now, when I grew up, um, and believe it or not, I knew, you guys know I grew up in Canada, but it was in southern Canada, okay? And I was raised on southern gospel. And it kind of continued on even when I came to North Carolina. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about when I say southern gospel? Old hymns, southern gospel, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. All right, here's what's interesting about southern gospel music. And this is why I go back and listen to it every once in a while. It's because about 80% of Southern gospel music is all about glorification, okay? It's, I'm going to walk those streets of gold, midnight cry. I mean, you know, when we all get called up yonder, everybody with me? Like, it's all of when I, I'll fly away. Uh, I'm just trying to think through, like, it's all heaven. It's like, it's all people going, oh, I cannot wait to get there. And 15 verses and a key change at the end, <laughs> Right? That's glorification. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, I'm sorry, about 80% of that. 20% is, is about the cross, good theology about the cross and what Jesus did for us. But usually there's a good verse or bridge in there about how great it's going to be when we get to heaven. Right? So even in that, that sense. There's nothing wrong with that. Because we have to understand, right, justification is a past moment, and it fills us with gratitude. So that's, that's good. Understanding our justification, understanding that we've been made right with God should do nothing but fill your heart with incredible gratitude that God somehow, you know, that he would even be mindful of you, that he would even be thoughtful of a plan to reunite his creation with him in relationship. This is, a, this is the, it has been or have been a moment in your life. It's, it's the past, but it should fill you with gratitude. That's how you respond. And, and glorification is about the future right? We will be free of this garbage dumpster fire of life, you know, of sin and death and disease. I mean, it fills us with hope. Everybody with me? Don't we need hope? That's glorification. You need an understanding of glorification in your theological framework to understand that not only are we grateful what God has done, but we are so filled with hope about what he's going to do, not just for you and me, but for everyone. Okay, he's going to make everything new. But sanctification is the present. It is where we live. And it should fill us with power and peace. Power to overcome sin in our life. And the peace that comes living 
in a sinful world. Living in a constant process and battle with sin itself and our sin nature. So you have to understand all three in order to really, we're going to dive into the present where we spend most of our time, okay, in this thing called sanctification. Uh, Here's a quick biblical definition. I pulled this from a couple concordances. Uh, Sanctification, it's the act of making or declaring something holy. The action or process, right, it's a making, it's a process of being freed from sin and purified or purified and now set apart, right, as a sacred purpose to religious use called consecration. That's actually some of the terms you'd read in the Old Testament is a lot of the terms about consecrating. That's basically the same idea and and parallel with sanctification, to sanctify, to set apart, to consecrate. Right? These, are, these are just the ideas that we get from Scripture in terms of the biblical definition. definition. Here's a, a passage that I love that talks a little bit about that. This is Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. And he says, but we ought always to thank God for you. I love that because that's just the NIV trying to make sense of all the crazy words they use, right? We know he talks like that, but Paul's writing and saying, listen, we, we, we ought always to thank God for you, our brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you, right? He, he, he chose you. And then he goes on to say, as first fruits, as, as sort of like this example, being first fruits are what was consecrated and set apart in terms of the, of the Old Testament, in terms of this idea of being set apart uh, for God, to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Like we're being saved through this work, through this process, and through our belief in the truth. And our belief in the truth is that, you know, justification, it's understanding what's true, that I'm a sinner, that he is holy, that I need to be made right with God. It's through the walk of Christ. That's our belief in the truth, our trusting in the truth. But it's also this sanctifying work done by the Holy Spirit. Again, very important to know, done by the Holy Spirit in our lives. It doesn't mean we don't have a part of the process. We are a part of the process, but I want to walk us through today and some of the why, uh, sometimes how we get that confused in terms of what our role is in sanctification. Now, everybody can see this sign, hopefully. What's it say? Say it out loud. Under Under construction. That's right. Everybody recognizes a sign like this. Now, this is slightly stereotypical, but most women that I know in my life would see a sign like this and walk right by it, right? Walk right past it, maybe have the fleeting thought like, oh, I wonder what's going to go there. I wonder if it's going to be my favorite store, right? Hang one of these in Birkdale, and everybody's like, ooh, what's coming? (laughs) Now, in my opinion, again, the majority of men that I know see a sign like this. What do men do? They stop. Why? Because they want to know what's going on. And they start peeking and looking and peering, okay? This is why construction sites are wrapped with plastic and six-foot, eight-foot-high fences, because men wouldn't go to work, (laughs) right? We'd stop in the middle of it, and we'd sit there the whole time with zero engineering and construction experience. I don't know why they're doing that. That doesn't make any sense. I'd put a wall over there. Is everybody with me? 
Okay, that's just, listen, again, stereotypical, but that's just my experience. If there was a power tool demonstration happening in the lobby right now, the majority of men would miss this sermon, okay? Only because it just, there's something that interests us. It's something that just kind of sparks our brain. Like this idea of something under construction, what could it be? And the process of getting there is interesting. But here's what's also interesting. It's also the primary reason that the majority of men that I counsel and men that I talk with in life struggle with their Christian faith. As interesting as it is on the outside, looking outside, you know, outside looking in, as interesting as it is on watching it, something like that happen, there is a struggle that the majority of us all struggle with. But again, I'm, I'm speaking from experience. A lot of men that I know struggle with what I know is the process of sanctification, right? Because it is a process. It is a process. It's not something to fix. And all the men go, ugh. It's not a problem to solve. It's not something to fix. It is a process. It is not acute. It is chronic. Everybody with me on that? Sanctification is a chronic process. Everybody thinks of chronic disease like consistent or long-lasting or recurring. And the reality is that's sanctification. It is a lifelong process that doesn't end until glorification. And yet we struggle. And so kind of my angle today is to talking about the why. Why did God create this? Why is this so important to our faith? I want to kind of come at it from the angle of why we struggle. Here's some of the ways in which God designed this to work, and we struggle with it. We, we kind of go against it. We, we, we fight with it. We question it. So let's walk through this together. The first one is our failure to sin. One of the reasons we struggle with the process of sanctification is because we're going to constantly fail to sin. And nobody likes failing. I mean, let's just face it. No, none of us like failing. None of us like admitting that we failed. Can I get a nod or an amen from anybody? Right? Oh, we might fail, but it sure does feel better when no one notices. Or we can cover it up. And yet this process of sanctification is an acknowledgement and an understanding that, our, that we have a war going on and that there is going to be times in which we fail to sin, to the power of sin. And then we're going to repent. Okay, The Holy Spirit's going to do a work and convict us, and we're going to repent. And then we're going to do a little bit better right? Because we're going to start trying to listen more to the Holy Spirit and walk in the Holy Spirit until one day we choose to walk in the flesh again, and then we're going to fail. And then we're going to have to repent. <laughs> Is everybody with me? Yeah, fail, repent, do better for a while, repeat. Now, I don't mean to sound like that's doom and gloom. I just mean to say, like, this is part of the process. 
part of the process is understanding the war that's going on. And this is why we struggle. We struggle with sanctification because we don't really want to go through that over and over and over again. We don't want to constantly admit our failures. We don't want to constantly admit where we're weak. We don't want to constantly admit where, we have, where, the, where the enemy has a stronghold in our life. Here's how Paul talked about it to the church in Galatia. He said, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, right? You're not going to then do what the sinful nature craves. He says, the sinful nature wants to do evil, okay? It wants to go against God, which is just the, what's the word? Say it aloud. Yeah, it's the opposite of what the Spirit wants, what the Holy Spirit wants. And the Holy Spirit gives us desires, you know, direction, as Chris talked about last week, direction that is opposite of what our sinful nature desires. And he says, these two forces are, just read the words out loud, how often are they fighting? So when do they fight? Yeah. Just make sure everybody got that. You know what that means in the Greek? It means constantly. That's what it means. <laughs> They're constantly fighting. It's a chronic battle against the sinful nature and the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And he goes on to even say, look, you're not even free to carry out your good intentions. Right? You're not even free to just be like, well, I intended good. I mean, I meant it in a good way. I intended this. I, I kind of wanted that. I went with my gut. You know, your true authentic self. Remember I told you the hot garbage that is a few weeks ago? Trying to live out your true authentic self? Please don't do that. Well, not if you read scripture. Not if you see what the word of God says. These two forces are constantly fighting. And part of your journey in terms of sanctification is to realize that, embrace it, understand it. Understand how it's showing up in your life. Here's how Paul said it to the, to, to the church in Rome. Okay, this is how he, this is, he, Paul uses his own personal example, him, to explain this to the Christians. He said, look, I really don't understand myself because I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, what's that? I do what I hate. Huh. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. They were having a battle about law, goodness and rules and laws, and he's like, look, if, if I even realize it's wrong, then I already acknowledge that the law makes sense. And then he goes on to say, but I'm not the one actually doing it. It's sin living in me that does it. Now, this isn't Paul making an excuse like, the devil made me do it. That's not him. That's not what he's doing. He's basically saying, look, this, this me that I'm trying to live out of by the Spirit is not me doing that. It is the power of sin in me that's doing it. It keeps going. I know that nothing good lives in me. Can we all just acknowledge that just for a minute? Listen, you know how much better this world would be if we all just looked at each other and said, you know what? There's nothing good in here. You know, there's nothing good in here. Jesus says something very similar we're going to read later on. That is, of course, he's clarifying my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't, right? I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. Has anybody had these conversations with their spouse or their kids or anyone can relate to this at all? Paul's saying all this for a reason. If I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it, though. It's sin living in me that does it. 
And then if you go, I, I love the message paraphrase in Romans. I think I've told you this before. So I love some of the way Eugene Peterson phrases up and summarizes the next couple of verses. He says, something has gone wrong deep within me. Okay? And it gets the better of me every time like the women with the shirts today. <laughs> this is a phrase that hits me all the time. It happens so regularly that it is what? Guys, it happens so often that it should be predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. Go back to the Verses, I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me, <laughs> not all of me joins in that delight. Part of me covertly rebels. And just when I least expect it, they take charge. Go back to the NLT. It says, what a miserable person. Oh, what a miserable person I am. NIV, wretched, wretched man I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Is there even a choice? Is there even an option? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm slave to sin. Now, he doesn't say slave to sin permanently because he goes on to talk about the freedom in Christ that he's given. But he's talking about the fact that when it's only me and it's in my effort, it's in my work, it's in my strength, I'm going to fail predictably to sin. It's only the work that's in Christ. It's only the work that he does in and through me that we can labeled good, that can be transformative. So this is why I say it's not, a, we have an active part in this, but it's not like in our own strength. It's not, don't ever hear the message from this church that you just got to do better. You got to grit up and do better and stop sinning and stop messing up and stop, like don't hear that. And never hear from us that because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that you have a license to sin. Paul goes on to Rome and in Rome and talk about that. Okay? Your drunkenness is wrong. Your lying is wrong. Your anger is wrong. Don't ever hear that you've got a, a free pass just because you've got grace. Hear the fact that this process of sanctification is about us understanding who we really are. And how this war affects us. And it should bring us to our knees every time. It should bring us to our knees, as Paul says, who can save me from myself? Thank God. It's Jesus Christ. The one I surrender to. The one who rules and reigns in my life. And most of the people that I talk with that struggle in their faith walk, struggling with sanctification, is because they just, they're, they're weary. They're weary of failing to sin. They're weary of making that, of having those same thoughts. They're weary of making the same mistake. And all I can tell you is I want to encourage you that's primarily because you are somehow still trying to do it in your strength. And what he's actually called you to do is to surrender all of that and trust that Jesus is the one who can deliver you from that. Does that make sense?
be encouraged by that. I know, I know it feels, but we just, we just don't want to constantly go to God admitting our failures or admitting it to our spouses or admitting it to our groups and sharing with our friends that we're, we're struggling or we're just continuing in this cycle of pain and struggling with this cycle of, why can't I just get this right? Some people don't even think they're a Christian anymore because they continue to struggle. And sometimes I tell people, listen, when somebody tells me, look, I'm still struggling. I don't even know if God likes me. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I'm like, well, the fact that you're even worried about it tells me you are a Christian. Everybody with me? The fact that it even bothers you tells me that there's something going on inside you. Here's kind of the same thing, but it's framed a little different way. It's this refining and pruning process. This is the way it's described in Scripture, this refining and pruning process of sanctification. This is how Jesus described it. Let me just give you Jesus' words, okay? Jesus said, look, I'm the grapevine, the true grapevine, and my Father is the gardener. Now, there's other places in Scripture, I think it's in John, where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know, he, he uses this illustration often. But he says, look, I'm actually the, I'm the real vine, but my father is a gardener. Everybody get a gardener in your head. Okay, nobody, pays, nobody does their own gardening. Everybody pays for their gardeners here. But, you know, just think about it if you actually did it yourself. I know Dan does. <laughs> if you did it yourself, what happens? Well, he cuts off every branch that doesn't produce fruit. You know, just ripping out the dead stuff. Everybody with me? That's worthless. Cut it. Gone gone, throws it in the fire, gone. But listen to what he also does. He, what's the word? Say it out loud. He prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they'll produce even more. Huh. All right, we'll go back to that in a minute. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Jesus is basically saying, look, me being on this earth, me being here, me being present, this is me telling you that part of my job has been to come down and help prune and purify you by the message that I bring, to help you get away from the, where we got lost with Judaism and help you understand the way, help you understand the kingdom. You're already being pruned and purified by the message. Paul wanted the church to know, or sorry, it's not Paul, Jesus wanted us to understand that not only is there a, a pruning, a disciplining, if you will, a rebuking, a correcting, that, by the way, none of us enjoy, when he wants to cut off and remove what is wrong, what is cancerous, what is evil, what is bad, what is sinful in our lives. Okay? Here's the deal. Sometimes sin is pretty fun. Sometimes it's pretty pleasurable. Sometimes it's getting what you want at work. Sometimes it's working in your marriage. Sometimes it's working in a relationship. Sometimes it's kind of even working when you raise your kids. But God wants to take that in you, that selfishness, that sin, that greed, all the above, and he wants to prune it out of your life. He wants to cut it, throw it in the fire, throw it in the bush. But then how many of us have ever thought through the fact that God, God's going to take some of the good things in your life and remove those too? so that you can actually get to great things in your life. And listen, that's, <laughs> that's a problem for a lot of us. Because when it's good, and we feel like, listen, have you ever had God answer a prayer? He answered a prayer, and it was a good thing in your life, and then you went on to something else later in life, and then God seemed to do something very different, 
and like, and like took you in a different direction. And the whole time, all you can think of, yeah, but I, that was an answer to prayer. Like that was, that was something I wanted. That was good. And God starts taking you in another direction. And we don't understand the concept that as the good gardener, as the good shepherd, he might just actually prune good things out of your life so that you can experience great things in your life. But that's what it teaches. Now, again, most of us struggle most with the, the cutting off and, the, and the, the refining. Here's how Solomon wrote it in, in the Proverbs, talking about this idea of a silversmith. He said, look, fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Fire goes to, to work in the process of a silversmith to get rid of impurities and gold, to get rid of impurities, to just leave what's pure. And that's what he's saying. God tests the heart. You're, he's doing a fire in you. There's a fire oftentimes in us that we're burning with and that we're struggling with because God's doing a work in you to see what's really there. He says it later on, to remove the impurities from silver and the sterling will be ready for the silversmith. Listen, guys, sometimes you and I are praying for something. Yeah, just hear me. Hear, hear me say this with love and compassion. Sometimes we are praying for something praying for God to do a work, and we are at the same time resisting the fire that's going to burn out the bad in us so that he could do the good work in us. Everybody with me? I mean, you're praying hard for it. God, why can't you just do it? Why can't you just make it happen? Why can't you just answer this prayer? Because he's got to do a work in you maybe first. Because part of the sanctification process is a refining, is a pruning that none of us enjoy. But we got to understand it as part of our process, as part of this faith journey. This is why, listen guys, this is why majority of our worship songs, I know I talked about Southern Gospel earlier in hymns, but you know this is why majority of our worship songs are rooted in sanctification. They're rooted in in this, this like completely like hands in the air, God, there is no one greater than you. Because I'm a wreck. Because I'm struggling. It's your love. It's your goodness. It's your faithfulness, even when I'm not faithful, that moves things forward. God, I'm grateful, justification. And I'm hopeful, glorification. But a lot of the worship songs we sing today are all about our sanctification. It's all about the process. As a matter of fact, we sing a great song called, he, we got to remind ourselves that he's the potter and I'm the what? You guys know, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? right? He's the painter, I'm the canvas. Like we got to sing these songs sometimes to remind us of the process of sanctification. Here's the third one. And boy, do we struggle with this. Our lifelong dependence on the Holy Spirit and a lifelong interdependence in a community of faith. And why we struggle with this really has a lot to do with just Western church, Western ideology, Western religion. Because it goes against, it's so countercultural to this hyper-individualistic, narcissistic nature that everyone in our culture gives us a free pass on. Like it's okay for it to be all about you. Why wouldn't it be? It's all about me. 
It's okay for things to be all about you. It's okay for things to, to offend you. It's okay for things to not be right with you. As long as it's not right with you, it's not right with the world. And guys, this, this goes against that individualistic nature, or at least culture, and part of our sinful nature. Where we kind of want to do it on our own. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We don't... We, Listen, when you're a child growing to be an adult, can't you wait? I'm looking at some of the teenagers over here. Can't you wait to be an adult one day? Ella, I'm looking straight at you. I know you, I know you want to nod your head. You can't wait to be an adult one day. You don't want your mom and dad telling you what to do all the time. Man, I know she feels that way right now. She's thinking about 15 things. I do this differently and this differently and this differently. Why? Because there is a strong desire for independence. It's part of who we are. But the problem is, is that our independence, our free will is supposed to draw us back to Jesus, to be able to choose him, to be able to put ourselves into that lifelong dependence on him, dependence on his Holy Spirit. And then knowing that we were wired to do this together, we were wired, it's not about a solo journey. We, we are... God did all this in, to create an interdependence of, of people who follow him the way, follow him as disciples, doing this, locking arms together. And we, listen, Christians wrestle and, and resist both of those things. And yet that's, that's at the core of sanctification. Again, here's how Jesus said it. He continued on. I want you to remain in me. He's talking about itself being the grapevine, remember? And I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. You cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Full dependency. <laughs> I'm the vine and you're the branches. This is where he said it. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. But apart from me, you can, what's the words? Woohoo! Do nothing. We hate, boy, Americans hate hearing that. I'll say it too. North Americans hate hearing that, right? Well, no, I can do stuff. Watch me. I can do stuff. And listen, there's people, <laughs> self-help is still one of the top literary categories of books sold in this country because we still think we can do stuff. And we'll do everything in our own strength, in our own power to do it ourselves, and God, and here Jesus says, look, you, far from me, you can do nothing. That doesn't mean you can't do anything small and insignificant like you currently are trying to do. He's basically saying you can't do anything of eternal value. You can't do anything of kingdom value on your own and in your own strength. You can't even do this thing called sanctification on your own. You need me. So remain in me, and I'll remain in you but it's our responsibility. So hear, hear how this is kind of weird, right? We are independently responsible. Yeah, you, Lynn, you, Dan, you, Beth, you, like you can't be responsible for you and you're not responsible for you. Like, you, are in, you are solely independently responsible for living a fully dependent life on the Holy Spirit. And to be an interdependent community of faith. That's all you. I want you to hear this clearly. It will be no one else's fault. 
won't be your husband's fault, won't be your wife's fault, won't be your kid's fault, won't be your parents' fault, won't be your brother's fault, won't be the pastor's fault. Oh, it ain't my fault. I'll tell you that right now. Everybody see how this comes together? You are independently responsible. It is your choice. It is your decision to make whether or not you are going to surrender your life to the rule and reign of Christ and be fully dependent on the Holy Spirit to help you through the warfare that's constantly within you as it refines you and purifies you. And you're going to do it a bunch, a whole bunch of messed up people. Like seriously, look at this room. We're all screwed up. Seriously, not a, there's not a good-looking one of you. I took it back. There's not a good-looking one of you out there, right? Nobody's got this figured out. Sure, we're maturing at different rates in our journey, but I'm just telling you, like, we're responsible to do this because that's how the process works. That's why. Here's a couple more verses. Confessing your sins to one another and praying for each other so you may be healed. Part of that interdependency of community of faith, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Keep going. I think the next one is Hebrews. Let's hold tightly to, without wavering, without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. And then it goes on to say, we got to think of ways to motivate one another to the acts of love and good works. Not just the what, but the why. And then it tells us we need to not neglect meeting together, not being part of this community, as some people do. This is 2,000 years ago. But encouraging one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. 2,000 years ago, I know everybody now thinks it's the end times. Did you, can you believe that 2,000 years ago they thought the same thing? They were on the heels of Jesus was supposed to be returning. And the majority of people following Christ were going, he hasn't come back yet. And the writer and author of Hebrews wants them to know, yes, he hasn't come back yet, but it doesn't matter if he comes back now or later and we'll never know. We're going to be faithful to what he's called us to be faithful to. We're not going to neglect it because every single day you live is every single day closer to glorification. Whether that's by him returning or by our death. We're one step closer every day. So we have these three things that are a part of the process. And these are the things that guys, I'm telling you, I, I said I called out guys earlier, but it's all of us. We struggle. We push against this. We resist it. And here's why I'm telling you we don't need to. Because in this world where we're called to point everyone to absolute hope, People have seen the what in Christianity in our own strength. They've seen us try to be good Christians in our own strength, to be more and more like the Jesus we think he is in our own strength. And it's horrible. It's horrendous. It's hypocritical. And it falls so short of the real Jesus. We need to be able to make sure people know that there's a battle going on in our, in our hearts. Always. That there's nothing good that lives in us. It's only Him. Anytime somebody sees something good, I just want to put a stamp. 
Jesus. Yeah, that's not me. I would have let you fall. Yep. I would have I let that happen. I would have I laughed when that did happen. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, there's nothing good in me. It's only him. We need people to see the refining process. We don't need to cover that up. We need to be more open about some of the struggles we're having in our walks, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our singleness, in our sexuality. We need to be more open about those things because this is part of the refining and the pruning that God wants to do in and through us. And part of that is being a part of this interdependent community of faith so we can encourage and motivate one another as we individually try to live fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit guiding our lives. Here's how Paul encouraged the church in Philippi. He said, I am certain, <laughs> I'm certain that God, who began the good work within you, justification, will continue his work, sanctification, until it is finally finished, glorification, right? On the day when Christ Jesus returns. Or you die, one or the other. Beautiful, beautiful verse on just this. So the best thing we can do, I think sometimes, for humbly pointing everyone to absolute hope is, you know, we just need to, we need to wear this, right? We need to wear this sign and be okay with it. In terms of sharing our Christian faith with others, oh, me? Are you a Christian? Yep. Sure am. I'm a mess. Yep. Oh, there's dust everywhere. You don't even know. But if you could see the work that he's already done, oh, man. If you could see the shape that I once was in, oh, man. If you could see it. There's an old song, old children's song. He's still working on me. You guys know that song? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Does nobody know the song? Oh, yes, well, sing it along. It took him just a week to make the moon and stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. Oh, how loving and patient he must be. He's still working. Oh, I'm proud of you guys. I knew that wasn't just a Canadian hit or something. I mean, I, mean, I knew that somebody knew this song. There is a bridge in that song that says this. They really ought to put a sign upon my heart don't judge him yet because there's an unfinished part. But I'll be better according to his plan, fashioned by the master's loving hand. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your challenging word today. Bringing about not just deep theological understanding, but just the way your word makes things simple, not easy, but simple and clear. That all these things we struggle with in our walk with you, we shouldn't. It's, it's our sinful nature that struggles with it. We need to embrace it. We need to surrender to it because it's all a part of how you want to make us more and more like you every day. How wonderfully patient you must be to be still working on me, God. Thank you so much. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.